Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome back to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. We're here with the guest today, Tom Stewart. Hi, Tom. How are we doing, gentlemen? We're good. We're here to talk about not only your career as an introduction as a trial lawyer, but then what it's morphed into. You're a professor at St. Louis University School of Law, and you teach a number of courses, including one called Evidence and Advocacy. It's a combined course that I had the opportunity to witness. You teach one time, and I thought, this is interesting stuff. So we invited you onto the podcast. I appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. So maybe to start, could you tell us about your career as a trial lawyer? Sure. Looking back on my career, I can't help but marvel at the good fortune that I had. I initially was hired at Kortnoff and Ely to work for Ben Ely on his team of associates. And somehow I landed that job and I was there for a year or so when Joe Kortnoff lost one of his associates, left the firm to go elsewhere. And so Joe plucked me from Ben's staff So then I'm working for Mr. Kortnoff, and in the process of handling his cases, his product liability cases and other things, I ran into a plaintiff's trial lawyer named Jim Holleran, and after the case was concluded, we struck up a conversation, and I spent the next 16 or 17 years with Jim Holleran, and eventually the firm became Holleran Stewart, and from there, other things happened. I went to work with David Zavon at the Zavon Law Firm, and then I wind up at the law school. Looking back on it, I think, could you map out three better mentors to be a trial lawyer in St. Louis than Ben Ely, Joe Kortnoff, and Jim Holleran? I mean, how fortunate, how truly fortunate I was that my career morphed that way. So after being a trial lawyer, tell us more about the teaching. So I I ran into Mike Wolf quite by accident. Judge Wolf, Professor Wolf, what do we want to call him? Dean Wolf. Mike has taught civil procedure. All of the above. Yeah. He's taught civ pro at SLU for generations. My civ pro teacher many, many years. Yes, mine too. So I run into Mike at Forest Park. I was out there jogging and Mike was riding a bike and I'd have been out of law school three or four years by that point. He recognized me. We stopped, we chat. He's asking me about my career, who I'm working for, what I'm doing. And as he literally is pushing off with his bike down the pathway in Forest Park, he says, you know, you should teach trial ad. And I am looking over my shoulder going, oh yeah, okay, whatever. Don't think another thing about that meeting. That was like March, April. And flash forward to August of that year, and my secretary says, there's a woman from SLU Law calling you about your class was starting. (laughs) My initial reaction was, does somebody think I'm still in law school? What do you mean my class is starting? I had no idea what the woman's talking about. So I get on the phone. This is Tom Stewart. Yeah. Well, just a reminder, your class start next week on Tuesday evening. I said, I've graduated law school. I've got a license. She says, no, you're teaching. And I'm like, I'm (laughs) teaching? She says, well, didn't you run into Mike Wolf? You had a meeting with Mike Wolf. And I'm like, oh, my God. Four months ago, I ran into Mike Wolf at Forest Park. She's like, well, that was your meeting. And so the only thing I remember asking her, I said, well, is there a book? (laughs) Because I don't even know what I'm doing. But that was literally how my teaching career got started. And so I worked there as an adjunct for a long time. Eventually, as an adjunct, I took over the trial advocacy program. 
somewhere along the way, again, as an adjunct, I got a call from the law school saying, hey, do you think you could teach evidence at night? And foolishly, I'm like, oh, sure. How hard can that be? You know, thinking because you're a trial lawyer, you know how to teach evidence, which of course you don't. And then all of this culminates again, just it's happenstance, but all this culminates again with another call from the law school. And our dean at the time, Jeff Lewis, wants to meet with me. Now, I'd been an adjunct there for 12 or 13 years. I had never met with anybody in the administration. But I'm teaching 100 students evidence at night. I've got 120 students in the trial ed program that I'm running. All of this is an adjunct. So Jeff Lewis calls my office again, wants to set up a meeting. And frankly, all I could think of was something's gone horribly wrong either with one of my adjunct faculty and a student, or I've screwed something up royally. So I go into this meeting kind of with my tail between my legs thinking, okay, what has happened? And Dean Lewis starts this kind of this soliloquy about what really animates your life and what your passions are, and you should follow those passions. And I'm really trying to follow the thread, but it's very esoteric. (laughs) Finally, I leaned forward and I said, Dean, are you talking about me coming to work here full time? (laughs) He gets aggravated. Well, yes, Tom, haven't you been paying attention? (laughs) I said, look, I thought I was in trouble. And now we're here talking about me working at the law school on the full-time faculty. So that's kind of how it all came to pass. But again, just kind of happenstance. So I sat in on one of your classes of evidence and advocacy, and I'd like to talk about that and your philosophy uh, teaching, but let me start with this vignette. You invited me to come sit in a class. It's in a courtroom, a simulated courtroom. I'm sitting there waiting. And then out of nowhere, Judge Stewart bursts into the courtroom, all rise, and students are looking kind of shaken, frankly, because you barked it loud. You're expecting people to stand up and get to the council table and get gone. And I thought, is that the way he runs his class? You explained later. Could you tell us a little bit about what your uh, thought process is? Well, I mean, the whole focus of my teaching is to try as best I can to replicate what we face every day in courtrooms. And, and you know, that's how courtrooms start. I mean, you're there, you're shooting the shit, you're fistle farting around, and all of a sudden you're on your feet. And some oftentimes quasi-aggravated judge is calling the docket and you're expected to go. And so I really want to give, to the extent I can, I want to give my students a sense of that moment. That this isn't, you know, happy, clappy judge who's excited that you've got a case to try in front of them. This is a person with four or 500 cases on their docket and is irritated that you can't manage to settle a case. And he's got to now sit in the trial or she does. I don't always start my class that way, but on that day we were doing direct and cross examinations and I wanted the class to come alive kind of instantly. So that's the way we started. You explained to the class that you could have in a different world, you know, gently come out to class. Hello, we're about to start the class, but that would not have taught that lesson. And it reminded me that there's a lot of things you do as a lawyer. It's not one skill set. I think of it as like a thousand skills, tons of mini skills that get you to be where you need to be if we ever get there. You know, one of those, for instance, was one of the students was taking testimony of a witness. I could barely hear them. And what you recommended then, of course, is that she stand 30 feet away so the witness is not forced to project across the courtroom. You know, that's something a lot of us learn from experience. But if you don't pick that up, that's not only not a good idea, that's dangerous. You might have just lost your case because the jury can't hear the witness. 
you don't realize the importance of a lot of these things that aren't book smarts. There are things that you have to see and practice, hence the practice of law. I had a case in my simulated courtroom where somebody asked the witness a question on direct and the witness gave an answer that killed their case. You just lost your case. And I didn't say it that way because I didn't want to devastate the student. But that's exactly what happened. And it was a common error. It's something that you just have to think through. You have to see it and experience it. And I thought about your class, you seem to have a lot of this stuff that I think of as vignettes where you're trying to play it out. And there's a lot of this not obvious stuff. And it's obvious to me that you have thought through a lot of these things and thought, I'm going to spare these young people having to learn the hard way by doing it here. Right. That's the objective. And so when we teach trial advocacy at SLU, we typically follow what's, I guess, known as the NIDA method, the National Institute of Trial Advocacy. And that is the focus of the course is the student performing. And our job as professors is to impart information, but we do it in the form of a targeted critique. But the focus of the course always should be the student in performance. And inevitably, when a student does a performance, there's a half dozen things that you can see that aren't right. And so the goal always is, all right, of these four or five things that need to be better, what's the one thing I can give the student right now? Because if you load up on the person and say, well, here's six things you didn't do right, and here's what you need to, that's never going to be received. It's never going to be absorbed. So when I'm teaching, I'm constantly evaluating what's the most important thing that I could give not only this student, but through the critique of this student, give the rest of the class. Because the critique isn't just for the student performing, as I remind my students that everybody should learn from this method because I'm not lecturing here. You're performing, I'm critiquing. And so it's incumbent upon all of the students to take down, to absorb the critique that they're hearing. But you can easily overload a law student with so much information that they literally cannot function. And so you have to always be balancing, I think, that. Keeping it simple. Yeah, exactly. We talked about real-life lawyers, people well out of law school, and we need to relearn these lessons. There's so many of these lessons that we need to relearn them. And you offered on the phone when we talked recently that the best way to learn them is teaching them. Tell us about your experience as a teacher and how well that's sharpened you as far as being a better lawyer. You know, the challenge facing my students now on graduation, that is to say those students that want to be trial lawyers, their challenge is getting courtroom time. We live in a world that I refer to as the resolution culture. You know, everything from the rules of civil procedure to the changing of the tort laws to go to pure comparative fault. All of it is, you know, forced mediation that the judge orders the parties to mediation. All of this is designed, of course, to get the case settled. And it works. You know, 50 years ago, something like 25% of all cases resolved by verdict. I mean, that's a staggering number. Now with the changes in discovery and mediation, et cetera, now way less than 1% of the cases that we have resolved by verdict. So their challenge, that is to say my students' challenge, is how are you going to retain the information that you're receiving at SLU? We've got an excellent trial advocacy program. Your challenge is how are you going to carry this information away from school and utilize it five years from now when you have your first trial. 
How is that information going to remain fresh and relevant to you at that date? And that's where I suggest to the students all the ways they can keep their brain steeped in courtroom advocacy. You can volunteer as a judge in a trial ad program. You can go to your local high school and say, do you have a trial ad program? Do you have a mock trial program? I'd like to help start one here. You can come back at SLU and volunteer and work with our students. But it's incumbent upon the newly minted courtroom lawyer. She has really got to take proactive steps to keep the skill levels, frankly, where they are when they leave law school. And one of the best ways to do that without any question is teaching. Most of the adjuncts that work with me, they not only do it for a love of, I think, teaching and helping the next generation, but I think many of them realize this is my way to keep my skills sharp. I'm going to teach you cross-examination, but in the process, learn three times as much about cross-examination than I'm ever able to teach you as a new lawyer. So I think that's a real challenge for today's new trial. Tom, the other thing, too, is things that come up in class. Every class, there's something new that, you know, I've been practicing, I think, 36, 37 years, probably have been teaching for 20. And a class usually doesn't go by without me seeing something I've not seen before. Yeah. You know, and you're like, wow, that's interesting. And it's not just reaffirming the stuff that we should know, but things come up. I mean, you learn new things in the classroom no questions. or questions. You'll get questions from the students. And one of them will ask that and I'll go, damn, that's a really good question. I'm not sure I know. <laughs> you know, let's talk about it and see what do you think, Peter? And right. you know, how do you usually handle that and why and why not? But there are as many ways to do it as there are attorneys. To me, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I learned so much being involved in the process and the teaching, the preparation, watching it live, watching the students prepare, not to mention the other benefits. It's just so satisfying for me to see the progress from the beginning of the class to the end of the class. You know, some students will start out from day one, they get it, and then some will struggle a ton in the beginning. And what I like when the ones who are struggling a lot, you'll just see them at the end kicking ass. I mean, they're just doing a great job. That's the best That is the best experience. No question about it. And you'll get notes from students, and my favorite ones that I get are the notes that say, in effect, you know, I kind of was lost in law school. I wasn't sure what I was about. I don't come from a family of lawyers. And then I took trial ad. And I get it. And now. I get it. I'm like, oh, yes. This is why I'm here. This is what here. it's about. Yeah. And that's really reaffirming. No question. There is something about these simulations in my class, which is you know pre-trial civil litigation, is preparing for trial, taking depositions, going through settlement, interviewing the witness, which goes for three or four sessions. There's a lot of things that can go wrong and a lot of lessons to be learned, but it's where that abstract hits the reality and the light bulbs go on. I'm sure we've all seen that in our classes where someone looks up, it's like, oh, that's why that's important. That's why that rule is there. Well, it was that experience teaching trial ad with students, you know, picking up a dry erase marker and throwing it at a student to make an objection when there's a hearsay question being asked. (laughs) And you saw the light go on in their eyes like, oh, five and a half weeks you lectured on hearsay. You mean that's what hearsay is? (laughs) (laughs) 
I finally understand it. That experience happens all the time in trial ed. And so it was that experience that gave rise to my thinking about the combined course. Why can't we teach trial ed and evidence simultaneously? Because there's just a ton of material that they have to be exposed to. You know, I'm sitting here smiling, thinking about handling objections in our trial ed classes. And when someone will stand up with either an objection or a response, one of the things I say is, you don't sound real confident. <laughs> and I said, I got news for you. You know about as much of the law on this as the judge does. You probably more because you know what the evidence is. And I said, just say it more confidently and you'll win most of the time. Yeah, exactly. If you just sound like you know what the hell you're talking about. Fake it until you, know, you make yeah, it. So huh? the, right. The judge wants to get it right. And if he's looking at you going, Jesus, this person really know what they're talking about? So, you know, it's always good stuff. I mean, where do you learn that in a book? You're going to learn that by doing it. That was the thing. When I first started out as a trial lawyer, I spent a lot of time watching trials in courthouses. I would go to my motions early just to see who was in trial. I was kind of a trial junkie because I'm trying to figure this out. And one of the things that I was just completely stumped about was this objection that would be made. And the objection would be completely timely. It would have appropriate grounds. The lawyer against whom the objection was lodged would have the perfect response. And I'm thinking, I can't do that. How the hell do they think that, one of the phrases I've come to loathe, uh, quick on their feet? And it took me a while to realize, no, 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 no. They're anticipating the objectionable question. They knew that John Simon was going to try to slop in the hearsay. So when he asked the question, they knew it was coming. Sure enough, they're ready with the objection. John, on the other hand, had anticipated that someone might say hearsay. He has the response. So, so much of what happens with really good lawyers and timely objections and instantaneous responses is they've anticipated that this is where this right. is going to go. And you know what that piece of evidence is. Sure you do. I mean, there's two or three that are going to make or break your case. Or, you know, right. you've got motions, pretrial motions. So you're right. It's not a surprise or a shock. But getting students not to sit there like a potted plant and actively be anticipating where this might go. That's the mental shift, right? Yes. That's what yeah. I've got to help them with. I tell the students that the one thing, it's all about preparation. I mean, as all of us know, it's preparation. It's the great equalizer. And that's the one thing that I think is easiest to pick out if somebody's not prepared. They'll get better. I tell them you're going to get better at presentation, at standing in front of people and talking. And, you know, that's easy. But figuring out what issue do I want to address? What question do I want to ask? Is this question going to help me or is it going to hurt me or do I need to bother with it? You know, those decisions are the why. But you figure out the how to do it sooner than the why. The other thing that the trial ed program does, and if you think about your law school experience, you'll see this. We teach law by necessity, I suppose, in a very siloed way. Right, your first year you have Civ Pro, and all you talk about is the Civ Pro rules. Then at two o'clock that afternoon you'll have Torts, and you won't talk about Civ Pro. You'll just study Torts, and then later on you'll have class on Evidence, and it really won't talk too much about Torts or Civ Pro. But we know in practice all of this is in the pot at any given time. Right when I'm filing my case, I'm thinking about Civil procedure. I'm thinking about the substantive law. I'm even thinking about evidentiary issues that may be framed by how I plead this case. And so one of the things that trial ed helps the student do is to realize 
oh, all of these topics are interrelated to each other and can serve each other. When I started the evidence and advocacy class, I started it with an idea towards, well, this will help the students better understand evidence. And it does. What I didn't anticipate was it helps them become better advocates. Knowing the rules of evidence, knowing the requirements for foundation, for putting an expert on the stand, knowing those rules actually helps you become a better advocate in the courtroom. That's kind of a surprising byproduct of the course design. But when John and I were at SLU, we had a course that I think most of us took, taught by Vince Immel, the legendary professor at school. It was a course called Remedies, and I think a lot of us took it our third year. But Professor Immel was able to do that. I remember being in that course going, holy cow, all of this stuff is interrelated. It didn't dawn on me that this was all in service to a cause called getting a remedy for the client. We don't have that many opportunities in law school to cross-pollinate, which is going to be the entirety of your practice. So I think trial ad, especially John's course, trial ad too, I think can help with that. For sure. Kind of sees it all together. Yeah, absolutely. I'm teaching someone how to improvise. I play a lot of jazz. And the person will wince at the mistakes. It's like, I just made a mistake. And I'm thinking, mistakes are good things. Man, there's nothing like a mistake to burn a lesson in deep in you. I think it burns it in like 50 times more than when you do something right. When you do something wrong and you realize it or you get called out on it. In your class, in our classes, it's a safe environment. It's a place to make mistakes. Sure. And it's not like out there where you got to walk around knowing you screwed a guy's life because you didn't do something right. Well, it creates the teachable moment, right? The mistake is what allows you to teach through the critique. So, you know, I tell my students, mistakes, they're little gifts to the professor because now we can all learn. The only two unforgivable sins in my advocacy classes are if you're not prepared, if you think you can write something down on the back of a napkin and come in and do something, that ain't going to work. And I'll be able to tell pretty quickly. Or if you're unwilling to participate, but assuming you're prepared and assuming you're willing to get up and give it a go, the fact that you suck is a benefit to all of us because that's how we're all going to collectively learn. I remember one of the first cases that I tried, it was a small auto case. It was in the city of St. Louis. And it was a case where I had taken the deposition and I went to trial it was a good liability case, not a big damage case. And I had assumed that the defense wasn't disputing liability based upon the answers that I got in the deposition. And I watched the defense lawyer put the defendant driver on the stand, and I'm looking at the depot, seeing if the case name is correct. <laughs> because and I was like, what the hell? Like it was completely, it wasn't her fault and all of this stuff. And so here I am going through to cross-examination, and I struggled so much because I'd never really pinned her down on anything. You know, I got some nods of the head and some general questions. And so that was tattooed in my brain, you know, ever after that, like when I'm in a deposition now, okay, great. If this is what you're saying, we're going to pin it down six different ways. We're going to get you to agree with it. And this is it. But again, it just took one time for me to go, ah, that's what they mean when they say <laughs> you need to pin the witness down, right? right? You need to ask clear, specific questions. I get it now. I know why we need to do that. Living with that depot in the courtroom can be a very yes. painful experience. Yeah, right. It's Absolutely. Like, you know, or with your own expert. And a lot of times I'll look at a deposition, even now, I'll be reading the deposition of our expert in a case that I didn't take, but I'm going to be trying the case. And I'm at the edge of my seat 
you know, turning the pages going, okay, okay, did he say it? Did he, did he say what I need him to say? But there's no substitute for doing it. When you actually stand up with a witness, cross-examining them, doing a direct, whatever it is, responding to objections, you get it. You understand, ah, now I know why. I don't know how you can actually prepare a case for trial. You really don't fully understand what you need and how to do it unless you've been through some trials. And that's the catch-22, isn't it? You know, I remember that same feeling looking at this discovery on a case that I was going to try thinking, well, this is worthless. All of this is worthless. My depots aren't good. I didn't get firm answers to the written discovery. I mean, I'm just going to go in there and let her fly. So, Tom, I'll tell you guys just a quick story. You know, George Fitzsimmons, who I've worked with for years, and he's of counsel here at the firm, and he's been a mentor my entire career. And when I first started as a young lawyer at the firm we were at, we were at with Grain Ritter, and George was my boss. And he handed me a depot to take, and it was a cab driver who drove through an intersection with a stop sign and got hit, and the woman in the backseat of the car was killed in the cab. I knew it was a big case, and it was an important deposition, and I prepared like crazy amounts of time. And I think questioned this poor cab driver for four hours <laughs> and asked him anything under the sun. I mean, you can imagine. And as long short of it is, it turns out that one thing I missed was the cab driver was blind in his left eye. And he couldn't see the car coming in the intersection. And George knew the personal attorney of the cab driver. But George found that out well after I had taken the deposition. And I'm looking at this three-inch thick depot. And here's a blind cab driver. <laughs> I had never asked that question. And I'm like, what a great first impression, you know, <laughs> you're on your new boss. I'm like, holy cow. And I asked him all kinds of glasses questions, but not, are you blind? Can you see out of that eye? A but minor I mean, fact. Yeah, a minor fact. So for many years after that, my first question would be, are you blind? In either eye? So <laughs> that's but, good. Uh, that's yeah, very good. Uh, Has there ever been a yes answer since? I don't think so. But people are like, but by what? God, I'm going to ask it. I ask it for sure. So we're always learning. No question. And at Courtnoff and Ely, back in the day, of course, this was the golden era of tort. So we had tons of cases and Mr. Courtnoff had tons of cases and he had a pretty firm philosophy he only had to enunciate it a couple of times, which was, I hire lawyers to answer questions, not to ask them. So you didn't go run to Mr. Kortnoff with, hey, how do I do this? You just figure it out. That's what you did. He told me one time, I always thought this was incredible confidence. His two biggest clients were General Motors on products liability defense and Brian Cave on legal malpractice defense. Those were his two most prized clients. Well, I'm a year and a half out of law school. I still don't know anything. And he sat me down. He said, look, here's the thing. I want you to keep these two thoughts always in your mind. When you walk into the courtroom representing General Motors, you're representing the largest corporation in the world. And back then, General Motors was the largest corporation in the world. And he said, I want you to act accordingly. Yes, sir. And he said, here's the other thought. There's nothing you can do in the preparation of this case that I can't fix in the courtroom. So make your decisions. Some will be right. Some will be wrong. Don't worry about them. Don't sweat them. I'll handle it. And I came away from that meeting, not only feeling a bit of relief, but thinking what supreme confidence does Mr. Kortnov have in his courtroom abilities? And he could back it up. 
there wasn't much that he couldn't unscramble in a case that I prepared for him. But I, I always thought, my God, what confidence that man has. So how long did he practice? When I left the firm in 91, he was still trying cases. I think he had a minor heart attack in the courtroom. Wow. And his defendant doctor, it was a medical case, actually had to tend to him. And I think after that, but I think I remember hearing at the time that he had almost 1,200 jury trials. Wow. Can you imagine? I can't. That's never going to be surpassed. No. Never. Well, you know, think about it. He practiced at a time when we had contributory negligence. So any negligence on the plaintiff and the plaintiff's out. So everything got tried. Let's try it all. And they would try a case on Monday. The jury would go out on Wednesday. They'd pick a Wednesday afternoon jury, try that case to Friday. I mean, that's what these guys did. And they tried 25, 30, 35 cases a year. Well, no wonder they became Jedi masters. I mean, my You goodness. know, I remember the old Division One docket with Tom Whalen, and I would go up there with three files for a docket call. And of course, they were each a day and a half, you know, auto cases, and they were about an inch thick, had some written answers to discovery if we were lucky, <laughs> you know, in there, and some photos. It'd be a couple photos of the damage to the cars. But I do. I remember sitting on that chair in his office with the files under my arm. That's the dichotomy, isn't it? Back then, you didn't need a lot of trial advocacy training. You got it on Monday morning when you got sent yes. out. Yeah. Right? So you'd either get really good at trying a case or you decide, look, I got to go write wills and trust or something. I can't do this. Now, we don't have those kind of trials anywhere near those numbers. And so I think that makes advocacy training for the practicing bar more important than it did back in the day when these guys were doing it. I'm thinking of, it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, that you don't know what you don't know. And how do you keep from reinforcing the bad habits? There's a lot of us that we think we know how to do it because we've been doing it a long time, but maybe we don't. Right. I am invited to teach with the Federal Public Defenders, their certified lawyer program where lawyers take a case as a public defender. The folks that run that program tell me that a lot of these older lawyers don't think they need what you've got to teach, but they need it more than anybody does. So pushing past that, hey, I've been a trial lawyer for 25 years, you've got nothing to teach me. Pushing past that, I think, is an important thing because, you know, unless somebody's willing to empty their cup a little bit and say, okay, maybe there is something here I've forgotten, like, oh, I don't know how to impeach with an inconsistent statement or anything. That's a big step in trying to teach anybody anything. They've got to be willing to learn. You know, one thing we do is we founded this podcast with the idea that it's a learning experience for all of us. And this has been a gift to me. I'm sure you think the yeah, same, same thing. We bring these guests in who teach us. Yeah. It's all about getting better and learning. I went to a two-week NIDA program when I was at the first firm, Coburn Croft, back in the 80s. It's the only one I had ever gone to. And they put us in small groups of five or six. And they had us stand up and talk about what our trial experience was. And mine was zero. I had second chair, maybe a half a dozen trials, but never a first chair. Maybe I'd put on one witness in my two years or whatever it was, three years. And it was amazing. One of the participants in the seminar who had the most experience was doing the worst job I mean, he was getting yelled at more than the rest of us, let me put it that way. And it was because he had already formed bad habits and kept doing them that way. You know, whereas somebody like me, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I was like, that's the way you're supposed to do it. Great. I'll do it that way. Right. I teach at the trial skills program at NIDA. We used to run it out of Boulder. Now we run it out of Denver. I go out there once a year. 
I remember six or seven years ago, there was a guy that took the course. He was with some big silk stocking firm out of New York. He'd been in the litigation department there 10 years when his wife decides, she's also a lawyer, she wants to move back to her hometown in rural Pennsylvania or someplace. So he followed her. He's like, okay. So he goes, well, he's got to find something to do, some kind of law job. So he decides to run for the county prosecutor spot. Well, lo and behold, he won. And so he comes to Nita and his- To learn how to- Yeah, when he stands up, he's like, I've been a litigator 12 years. I'm now a prosecutor. Turns out I've got to try some of these cases. I got one on Monday. Could you speed this up? Well, you talk about a receptive student. I mean, he was like, please, God, help me here. He was very eager learner. Maybe to wrap up this episode, I'd like to throw more question out. We've been talking about the importance of confidence. It's really important to look like a confident lawyer in front of jurors and judges. How do you turn the anxious student into somebody who has some confidence? What's that path? Well, I think there's a couple things about that. I'm reminded of a great story. Tony Bennett, back in the day, had tremendous stage fright, and he was almost crippled by it. And he went to the guy back then who was Frank Sinatra, and he says to Sinatra, you know, what do I do with this? Man, I've got this nervousness. I've got this crushing feeling that I just don't know how to get past it. And Sinatra's advice was genius. He said, why get past it? Let the audience see that you care enough about what you're doing, that you're nervous. If you do that, if you have the courage to do that, the audience is going to be with you. You'll have them eating out of the palm of your hand. This entertainer cares enough about us that he's actually nervous. Well, we love the guy, right? I remember I had a case, I won't mention the person's name, I had a case before I joined the faculty full-time, and it was against a lawyer who was trying her first trial. It wasn't a big case, but they wouldn't pay anything on this auto case. So I'm like, all right, well, let's just go try it. So leading up to this, I'm like, this is going to be fantastic because I knew she hadn't had a trial, and I'd had some trials, and I'm like, this is going to be okay. This is going to turn out. Well, I get up and I I do voir dire. I thought it went great. And I thought I was making connections with the jury and all the stuff we try to do. She gets up. She moves the podium. She drops her pen. She fusses around with papers. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I've got this. And then this happened. She says, ladies and gentlemen, um, before I get started here, I, I just have to tell you something. I'm really nervous. This is my first trial. And uh, Mr. Stewart's had a number of trials, and uh, I haven't. And what makes me nervous is that you're going to see that I'm nervous, and you're somehow going to hold it against my client. And I'm not kidding you guys. As soon as she said that, two things happened. One, four or five jurors crossed their arms and look over at me like, you're not going to hurt this person, asshole. (laughs) And the second thing is I had this thought in my mind, Is this one of my students? That is such a Jedi move to just open yourself to the audience. The approach that I thought I was going to take in that courtroom, well, I had to turn on a dime. She had that jury on her side instantly, and it relieved her of the burden of having to be some kind of swashbuckling courtroom person that she wasn't. And all of that was gone. And what did it take? And I tell my students this story. What did it take? Well, It took the courage to own the reality of where you are. I don't have to put on an act for you people. This is my first trial. I'm going to do my best. 
I hope you won't hold it against my client. And I just remember thinking, man, what an unbelievable. What a great story. Yeah. And it really, I was just gobsmacked when she did it. I'm like, oh my God, I'm screwed now. Tom, this has been great. We're going to close this episode now, but the next episode is going to be about the nuts and bolts of applying evidence to advocacy and your specialized approach to doing that. Great. Thank you again for joining us. It's been sure. great. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.